This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending another 30 minutes of your precious time joining us as we talk about the issues in American politics. And today we want to bring you a special Labor Day edition. We wish you all a happy Labor Day. And we are thrilled to have our guest, Stephen Greenhouse, the former longtime New York Times labor reporter and author of the lauded 2009 book, The Big Squeeze, Tough Times for the American Worker. And Stephen has a new book out, which we will talk about near the end. How are you, Stephen? Uh, good. Good to be here. Hey, thank you so much. So Labor Day was established in 1894 when the American uh, workers really started to uh, uh, gather and solidify. Um, What does American labor have to celebrate today, 127 Labor Days later? It has a lot to celebrate, but also a lot to worry about. During this pandemic, of course, it's been very hard for many workers, but, uh, you know, wages have risen very quickly the past few months, as many employers have had a hard time attracting workers because workers are scared to go back because of COVID, because they don't have childcare, because they're worried that, you know, customers are going to cough and breathe all over them because, you know, schools are closed. <laughs> so workers are kind of in a strong bargaining position. Sure. Uh, we have... You know, uh, Joe Biden is probably the most pro-union, pro-worker president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which is saying a lot. And, you know, a few minutes before we start talking, I see that Gallup Gallup, uh, just today released a new poll saying that public approval of labor unions is at its highest level since 1965, at its highest level in 56 years, if my math is correct. Wow. 68% of workers of Americans approve of unions. I think that means that a lot of workers are frustrated. You know, they see all these Mercedes Benz and BMW <laughs> yes, commercials right. and say, right. you know, why can't I get a piece of that? And they want, yeah. in, you know, economic improvement and they're frustrated. And I think, you know, they, they look to unions, they look to Biden, they look, you know, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're people, I think people are very hopeful this Labor Day, but also very frustrated. So the dominant labor story that I thought this year was the vote in the spring on whether Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama facility would form a union. The ballot showed two thirds of those voting opposed the union representation, a vote that Earlier this month, the National Labor Relations Board now says should be retaken due to the unfair interference by Amazon. Tell our listeners about that situation. Amazon, as you all know, is a usually powerful company. It's now the second largest private sector employer in the nation after Walmart. It, it you know, it hires, you know, it employs hundreds of thousands of, of workers. And it, you know, no Amazon facility in the United States is unionized, so a union the retail, wholesale, and department store employees unions sought to unionize an Amazon warehouse in Alabama, in Bessemer, Alabama, with about 5,000 people. And everyone agreed that was a steep challenge because Amazon is fiercely anti-union. It runs an extremely aggressive anti-union propaganda campaign whenever it gets wind of workers supporting a union. And, uh, you know, as I write in my most recent book, beaten down, worked up the past, present, and future of American labor. 
you know, a lot of American workers want unions. Recent polls by professors at MIT show that one in two American workers would like to join a union if they can, yet only 6% of workers in the private sector are in unions. And as I explained in, in the book, in my book, Beaten Down, worked, worked, worked up by far the main reason uh, such a small share of American workers are in unions is that companies do such an expert job banging workers over the head, pressuring them, intimidating them, um, propagandizing propagandizing them not to join unions. And that's what happened at Amazon. And and one of the, I, I often say that when workers seek to unionize, the playing field is tilted usually against the union and in favor of companies. Now, why do I say that? So take this huge Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, 5,000 workers. Amazon can propagandize, speak to workers 24 hours a day, seven days a week through videos, you know, through messages on terminals, through banners, or by ordering workers to attend these kind of anti-union propaganda sessions. So kind of Amazon could do a full court press 24 hours a day. Meanwhile, under American law, under, under uh, interpretation by our conservative Supreme Court, it ruled that property rights trump workers' rights. It says that unions, that, that employers have every right to prohibit uh, union organizers from setting foot on company property, from even setting foot in the company parking lot. So it's really skewed that the company has access to the workers, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's really, really hard for the union to reach the workers, especially during the pandemic when, when uh, you know, one of the main tools union use, unions use when they seek to tell workers, hey, Unions are pretty good. They could raise your wages. They can get you better benefits. They could prevent you from being fired arbitrarily. You know, unions often knock on people's doors and, you know, sit down with the workers, you know, and have one-on-one -on -one sessions explaining the benefits of unions. That's a very labor-intensive thing. But during the pandemic, the union couldn't even do that in Alabama. So Amazon ran its, you know, full-court anti-union press, you know, for several months and the union really had a hard time reaching workers, mainly reaching them by telephone. So it just wasn't a fair fight. And, and the National Labor Relations Board, uh, which really is kind of the judge, the umpire, in determining whether the two sides, a union or the employer, played fair or whether they broke the rules, um, a, you know, um, as a first step, an official in the NLRB said that Amazon broke the law in fighting against the union. So... Uh, the judge is going to order a new election. And, and that's very interesting. There was two things you mentioned. One was the audience. They called them audience sessions where workers were brought in. On, I think it was four or five times. They were sat down, said, these are why unions aren't any good. But the other thing they did is there was a post office box set up sure. for their workers to make their vote. And Amazon put a big tent around it with Amazon right. on top. There were cameras pointed at the post office box. So there was a fear that they, I mean, I guess there was a feeling that they were intimidating them. Yeah. I, 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 Jerry, I, I was going to explain that. I, I feared it might be too complicated, but you know, so Amazon asked the post office to put a post box right at the entrance of the warehouse. And union says, don't, don't, don't do that. It will look as if Amazon and the Postal Service are in bed together and that Amazon, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, you know, is photographing how people vote, is looking over the shoulder how people vote, that people, when they deliver their ballots in this mailbox, are going to think, you know, I better do what management wants. 
And um, the National Labor Relations uh, Board official said that was a very intimidating gesture to put a mailbox inside a tent right in front of, of the Amazon warehouse. So they said that was a problem and that intimidation of workers uh, the NLRB said was a problem. You know, one example of, of intimidation, I interviewed several workers at the warehouse. They said they would attend these meetings where Amazon officials or Amazon lawyers or Amazon consultants held forth on how bad unions are. They often say unions, you know, they're just businesses that want your money. They don't really want to help you. Mm-hmm. So a few workers got up and asked tough questions saying, hey, you know, unions really are pretty good. What you're saying isn't true. And then Amazon officials took photographs of those workers and their badges. Mm. And, you know, that scared the bejesus out of them. Like, you know, you're really sure. being singled out. Everyone right. sees you being singled out. So people know, you know, if you stand up to the man, if you stand up mm-hmm. to Big Bad Amazon, you're really sticking your neck out mm-hmm. and your neck might get chopped off. Mm-hmm. So uh, the lesson is you better not stand up. You just better toe the line. I think a lot of people... Uh, was scared. I should say, Jerry, that, you know, Amazon's pay in Alabama was much better than, you know, pay of McDonald's or many nursing homes. And, uh, you know, for people who left McDonald's or Burger King to go to work for, for Amazon, you know, they, they were making $15, $16, $17 an hour instead of $10 an hour, $8 an hour. So they were pretty happy there. One of the weird things is, you know, the younger workers were kind of happier were more against the union, the older workers, the older workers had been around the block. They had been at better jobs. You know, they had, you know, some of them had made $20 an hour and then, you know, their factories closed and then they took lower pay at Amazon. And they said, we know we can do better than Amazon. We know Amazon could pay more. Whereas a lot of young, you know, a lot of the older workers were like going down from $20 an hour jobs to 17. But a lot of the younger workers are going from $9 an hour jobs to 17. And they thought, right. oh, this is great. Wow. And they're not worried about their health care. They're young. They're not worried. They're on families. They don't, you know, they're not buying houses yet. But one of the interesting things about the vote, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. So 740 people voted for the union, about 1800 voted against the union, but 2000 people didn't even vote, which is almost half the, the number of workers. Why do you think that was? I think people... I think several things there. I think partly it's like people just got tired of it. I think a lot of those people, I could be wrong here, but I think a lot of them supported the union, but they thought, gee, if I vote for the union, even though it's a secret ballot, but if I vote for the union, the manager asked me two days later, did you vote for the union? I didn't want to be in a position where I lied to him or her. Mm-hmm. So they just thought, you know, screw it. I'm not going to vote. Yeah. And I think some of them also thought, you know, the union's going to lose anyway, so why bother? Um, but, you know, I think if and when there is a new union election, I think, you know, the union should do better next time. It should be able to make house visits. You know, I, I think it will try to have more organizers down there than it did. I think people were very scared during the pandemic. Uh, I think Amazon might feel some um, inhibitions about not being as aggressive as it had been. But it's still... You know, against a hugely, a huge and usually anti, anti, uh, union company like Amazon, it's not easy to win a unionization vote. And one of the things that's interesting, Steve, and you could explain this to me probably a little better. So the union can only use its local to push this vote, where Amazon gets to use its national resources to oppose it. How does that work? And do you know what is that rule? That's not quite right. The union, you see, there's a union local there. 
but the parent union based in Washington or New York or wherever can, you know, can provide extra money as it wants. And the AFL-CIO, you know, the, the, you know, the National Labor Federation could kick in extra money. But of course, Amazon, you know, with a gazillion trillion dollars in revenues can spend a lot more money, has the wherewithal to spend a lot more money uh, beating up on the union than, than, the, than the union has. And I, and, I, and I should say, you know, one of the major reasons why, you know, workers wanted the union is, you know, working at Amazon is a very grueling job. And people just felt that their minds, their bodies were like beaten up day after day with the pace of work. Not everyone felt that way, but a lot of people feel that way. And they just feel they don't have a voice on the job, just that Amazon tells them what to do. And if you don't like it, lump it, get lost. Yeah. And they want it, you know, they are human beings who want to make the job more human, more fairer, kinder. Right. And they think it would be better for everyone if workers had some collective voice to help ensure that Amazon treated its workers better. So it, it, you, went, you made the point, and, and this has always been the point in the battle between employers and employees, wages, conditions, and health care. And we see the rise of these major retail stores as the Walmarts and the Targets, um, the e-commerce as Amazon. You mentioned in your first book, and I think you had very pointed examples of where, you know, conditions were horrible. People weren't allowed to go to bathrooms and they were soiling themselves. And, you know, a guy in Walmart, he goes out and stops a shoplifter and gets his knee wrecked and instead of you know playing a claim he gets fired so it's interesting to me because this seems to be this whole shift in this service workforce the amazon people the walmart people they seem like the coal miners and the factory workers of the late 1800s who were the ones that really started the unions against big company presidents like you know rockefeller and carnegie and and jp morgan is it is it a similar comparison yes or no i mean uh you know the job you know the, the old coal mining jobs at the beginning of the 20th century those are incredibly dangerous jobs a lot of people died it was hard work and people work harder on, at amazon too but it's not nearly as dangerous uh, you know, one might say perhaps the pace of work at Amazon is as fast as in the old coal mines, but it's not nearly as dangerous. Um, but I think uh, two things are at work, uh, Jerry. One, I think there has been a backsliding on working conditions compared with 20 and 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And in my book, I explain the many reasons why things have gotten worse for workers. One is, you know, labor unions are much weaker than they were 30 and 50 years ago. Only six, you know, six percent of private sector workers, ten percent overall are in unions. That's down from like thirty-five percent mm -hmm. once upon a time. Mm -hmm. Second, I think corporations put much, much, much more emphasis on maximizing, maximizing profits than they used to, mm -hmm. and and that means squeezing down wages, squeezing down benefits, trying to increase productivity, trying to increase the pace of work. Um, threatening workers with automation unless they, they work faster. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think in many ways, workers are treated worse than they were 30, 40 years ago. I mean, you know, sometimes I joke with people, remember the 40-hour work week? <laughs> you know, in you know, 1950s, 70s, it was a pretty standard thing. People right. worked 40 hours a week. Yeah. They went home. They had right. dinner with their yep. families. Yep. They saw their, kid, their kids play, yep. play Little League. Now... You know, many workers are working 50, 60 sure. hours a week, and it's just different. Yeah. And like 
companies are so demanding and the expectations of what your boss expects from you have increased so that you know people are working much harder. And one of the crazy statistics about the American workforce is the typical American worker works 200, 300, 400 more hours a year, you know, five, eight, 10 more yeah. full weeks a year than workers in Britain and yes. France and Germany. Yes. So there's something really broken yeah. that American workers work so much harder than workers in other Western nations. And, and, and you know, we are the only, the United States, as I explained in my book, is the United States is the only wealthy industrial nation that doesn't guarantee all workers paid sick leave. We're the only industrial nation that doesn't guarantee all workers paid parental leave and family leave. Mm -hmm. We're the only industrial nation that doesn't guarantee all workers paid vacations. You know, in the 27 nations of the European Union, every worker is guaranteed at least four weeks paid vacation. Here in the United States, under the law, workers are guaranteed nada, zero, nothing. So it's, it's, you know, so something's very broken. And, you know, in my book, I explain why things have gotten worse for workers. And, you know, here are 10 or 20 different strategies we can use to try to build a fairer America, make things better for workers and their families. But yeah, they look at us over there like we're crazy. You guys are working yourselves to death. I mean, you know, and, and uh, you so, mentioned yeah, earlier. I, I mentioned yeah. my book, you know, um, I did a story with a, a fellow New York Times reporter in, in Europe comparing a McDonald's job in the U.S. with a McDonald's job in Denmark. And, you know, the typical McDonald's worker in Denmark made $20 an hour. The typical, this was a few years ago, the typical McDonald's worker in the U.S. made $8, eight dollars eight fifty an hour. I mean, it's, and, and, and basically people said, well, if you pay as much as you do in Denmark, you're going to have to triple the, the, the cost of, of Big Macs. Yeah. And the cost of Big Macs <laughs> weren't much higher. And another thing is like at a lot of McDonald's workers – like don't learn until Friday or Saturday what their schedule is going to be for the following week. Mm-hmm. So like what happens if you need to have mm-hmm. a PTA meeting, mm-hmm. you know, meet with Child your child's teacher yeah, or go to the doctor. Yeah, get your kid Whereas care. like in Denmark and many other countries, you know, you know your schedule two or three weeks before. So it, it's just kind of a lack of consideration to, to workers, you know, like, you know, um, Golden rule, you know, do unto others yes, as thou yes, wants yes, them to do unto yes, you. Treat others yes. the way you want them to treat you. Mm-hmm. Can you begin to imagine, you know, bosses, managers, you know, how they would feel if you, you told them two days in advance, this is your this is your schedule for next week? You mentioned uh, the politics and you mentioned Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I think um, that was the time when labor unions had maybe the biggest political force because he was such a big supporter and um, that battle was was raging back then. Joe Biden comes in. He says he wants to be the union president, working class guy, grows up and work working class Wilkesboro. Um, I don't think he's had a lot of time to get anything done, but what do you think he can do? I mean, he wants to do a lot. I think Biden is very sincere in wanting to help workers, especially lower wage workers and blue collar workers and working class folks and folks in factories. I think he's very serious, but he faces one very big obstacle, the, you know, the Republican Party. You know, Republicans, you know, I hate to say it, are very beholden to corporations and to wealthy donors. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when the House of Representatives voted on a $15 minimum wage, uh, every Democrat voted for it, 
and all but three Republicans voted against it. Only three yeah. Republicans voted to increase the minimum wage. And that shows while Republicans make believe that they're the party of the working class, they're really the party of corporate America. Mm-hmm. You know, when the Democrats pushed a bill that would allow paid parental leave, you know, again, we are the only country in the world except for Papua, Papua New Guinea and Suriname mm-hmm. and a few Pacific island nations that doesn't have a law guaranteeing all women paid maternity leave. Mm. So when the Democrats pushed a proposal to allow, you know, paid maternity leave, the Republicans blocked it unless the workers paid for it themselves. The Republicans didn't want corporations paying for it. So Republicans, so Biden wants to do all these things to help workers. He wants to have a law to have, you know, paid, you know, parental leave, paid family medical leave. He wants to raise the minimum wage to $15. He wants to pass an important um, bill that would make it considerably easier to unionize. I talked a few minutes before, Jerry, about how insanely tilted the playing field is against unions when they seek to unionize. This proposal would help level the playing field. But there, you know, but Biden faces one big obstacle on all these, the filibuster in the Senate. So all these things pass in the House, and then uh, they face, you know, basically death in the Senate because the Republicans and Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz and Mario and Marco Rubio all just we're not going to vote for all these pro worker things because you know, these are mandates that will make employers unhappy and and that would and if we vote for them that's going to piss off the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> so so Biden really wants to do stuff, and I think, you know, he. He has done a lot already. He had, you know, greatly increased unemployment assistance. He's issued executive order requiring federal contractors to pay their workers more. He's appointed some very worker-friendly people to the National Labor Relations Board. Mm-hmm. Under Trump, you know, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Agency, basically went into hibernation for a while, mm-hmm. especially at the nation's meatpacking plants where a gazillion sure, people sure. caught COVID. And, and, uh, Biden's trying very hard to revive and activate uh, OSHA again. So, you know, Biden's really, tr- and, and then he's trying to enact this huge infrastructure plan, which would create hundreds and hundreds of thousands of good middle-class jobs. And whenever Biden says that, he says, we're going to create hundreds of thousands of good union middle-class <laughs> jobs. So, right. you know, he's, so he's trying really hard to help workers, but, you know, Republicans, while they make believe that they're the best friends of workers, you know, across the board, they, they often, you know, they, they really are resisting legislation that would help workers. And, and they're real. They, they don't want Biden to be seen as helping workers because they, they know that would help the Democrats in 2022 and the Democrats in 2024. So just as Mitch McConnell swore that, you know, his role was to prevent Obama from being reelected, he's going to do everything he can to prevent Obama from being a success. You know, they're quietly doing the same thing with Biden, trying to prevent him from really showing his being able to to flaunt his pro-worker views and show, look, I have this success in helping workers and this success in helping workers. But, you know, if the 3.5 billion spending package is passed, it's going to do lots of good things to help American workers. It's going to increase funding for child care. And a lot of Americans can't begin to afford child care. It's going to, for the first time, uh, create paid parental leave you know, for all American workers, it's going to increase aid for senior care. A lot of workers have a hard time trying to juggle their job with taking care of their 80 year old parents. So, you know, Biden, I think, is doing a lot of very smart, good pro worker stuff that Americans 
overwhelmingly support by like 75% to 25% or 82% to 18%. But there's a certain political party that, that is trying to block all of that. Well, one of the things when you talk about even the formation of unions, whether you're talking in any country, the oxygen needed for a union is solidarity. So labor, as you say, has traditionally sided with the Democrats, yet former President Donald Trump gain most of his support from white working class voters who felt they had lost their voice in the political process. And the American workers now seem politically to be divided. Um, does that undermine the the ability or the, or the movement of labor unions? Now, Jerry, you raise a good point. So uh, Trump, so I'm from New York. I followed Donald Trump for four decades. And, you know, four decades ago, I saw this guy is, an, is a crazy liar and demagogue. Well, why don't you tell and, us, Steve? And, and, all, and all he cares about himself. So, you know, getting rich and, 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 you know, and there are gazillion workers about how he, he's stiff this contractor and that contractor and these contractors, these carpenters are suing him and these laborers are suing him because he's not paying for the work. You know, this went on for 30, 40 years. So he, you know, runs to the White House saying, you know, banging his chest saying, I'm the best friend of workers. Look at me. I mean, like, you know, we from New York knew that was bull. But, you know, Trump is a very clever man. And he know, and he attracted many union members, excuse me, by really hammering two or three, three themes. He said, uh, you know, you whites in the Middle West, you better, you know, you have to worry that immigrants are going to take away your jobs. Mm -hmm. And the crazy thing is, like, the Midwest probably is the lowest percentage of immigrants <laughs> of any region in the country, yeah. like Pittsburgh. And so, and a lot of people ate that up. He also said, with some truth, that the Democrats have pushed too hard for free trade agreements. Bill Clinton did, Obama did. And that resulted in some, you know, many manufacturing jobs going to Mexico and elsewhere. People forget that it was George H.W. Bush, a Republican president, who originally negotiated NAFTA. People also forget that uh, a higher percentage of Republican senators voted to approve NAFTA than Democratic senators. But Trump says it's all Clinton's fault. It's all Clinton's fault. And and meanwhile, you know, Trump businessman, you know, had all his clothing and all of Ivanka's clothing were made in China. So on one hand, he <laughs> bashes China. On the other hand, he was using China. So, I, you know, he's such a hypocrite. So like Trump becomes president. He does zilch to raise the minimum wage. He makes fun, bashes, ridicules unions, and he appoints judges, one judge after another, who's massively pro-corporate and doesn't care about workers. And you could look at dozens of rulings by Trump-appointed judges that are anti-worker, anti-union, and pro-corporate. So, you know, Trump, you know, Trump is brilliant at talking the talk, but he really doesn't walk the walk at all. His OSHA was a, you know, did very little for workers, you know only did minimum fines uh, when when they did things that endangered workers. You know, there was just a big story that there was this horrible pesticide that endangered farm workers and their kids. And the Trump administration gave a bright green light for farmers to use it, even though it was, you know, many scientists said it's very dangerous. And, uh, you know, Biden administration just reversed that saying, that's a horrible pesticide. We're going to ban it because it's so dangerous. Remember when all these workers in meatpacking plants are getting COVID mm -hmm. and you think this is horrible, you know, mm -hmm. and one, one meatpacking plant, I think over a thousand people got COVID. And what does Trump say? We're going to keep all the meatpacking plant. He issues an executive order saying we're going to keep all the meatpacking plants open, you know, screw the workers. We're going to keep them open. And, you know, so there's this myth 
you know, is one of many Trump's lies is that he's pro worker and he's really going to go to bat for workers. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I'm sorry to say he fooled them, and that made it hard for unions and union leaders because. You know, I think unions, you know, Hillary Clinton could have been much more pro-worker. And she, you know, I think Hillary was too much seen as the friend of wealthy lawyers mm-hmm. and wealthy mm-hmm. investment bankers mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. you know, her, her buddies in Silicon Valley. And she wasn't, you know, seen, she wasn't as pro-worker, nor was she, you know, did she really go out and beat the bushes to, mm-hmm. to win the work of a, the way Biden did. And and so Trump could really capitalize that and, and on that. And unfortunately, the Democrats are too often seen as increasingly as the party of the educated class and not so much as the party of the working class as they were under FDR. So I think, again, Biden is trying very hard to change that. He doesn't want the Democratic Party to be seen as the party of Silicon Valley and, and, and wealthy investment backers. He, you know, he's trying to make it clear that the Democrats are a party of typical Americans, whether you're white, uh, yellow, black, brown, that, you know, that the Democrats are a big tent that's going to fight for all workers. How did the Democrats lose that though? I mean, you had, they had, they had him with FDR. My dad was a city bus driver, uh, transportation worker, union guy, great uh, job, great benefits, took care of six kids. Um, and now those guys I grew up with whose fathers were union guys who Democrats, uh, legislators and council members helped get jobs. They're all Trumpers now. And how did the Democrats lose that? So it's not that they're all Trumpers, unless you're, you're from the South, Jerry, then they might all be. So uh, FDR was extremely pro-worker. He was a hero of the workers. He was, you know, revered, worshipped by many blue-collar families. Tr- you know, um, Truman also, you know, he did a lot for workers. And Kennedy... Um, Johnson, they pushed some pro-labor stuff, but I think, you know, but, you know, with Jimmy, you know, Jimmy Carter didn't know what to, you know, was not visibly pro-worker. Reagan, I think, won over a lot of, uh, white working class people by promising tax cuts and by saying, you know, those, you know, black welfare queens, they're the, you know, they're going to, they're killing our nation. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, Reagan, like Trump, really milked racial division mm-hmm. to win over, uh, you know, blue collar whites. And that's very unfortunate, you know, because, you know, many, you talk to many labor leaders, they say white and black and brown workers all do much better mm-hmm. if they band together and fight together mm-hmm. to raise their standards. And mm-hmm. that if they're busy undercutting each other and at each other's throats, that's going to be worse for them. They're competing with each other. They're dragging each other down. And it's bad to have such a divisive nation where there's all this mm-hmm. ugly division. So, so, and beyond that, so, you know, you remember 1960s, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King gets assassinated. Lyndon Johnson pushes through all these civil rights laws. And he said, you know, we, we the Democrats, are going to lose the South. And we did because the white working class said, well, we're not going to support a party that supports blacks. So they turned massively Republican. And then Republicans as explained in the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, you know, they would ignore economic issues. They'd be against the higher minimum wage. They'd be against stronger unions. They'd be uh, against, you know, strong enforcement of of, uh, labor laws to raise wages and fight wage violations. But they'd win over many white working class voters by saying, oh, the Democrats are bad on guns. The Democrats are bad on abortions. The Democrats are bad on same-sex marriage. So the Republicans have been successful, just as Trump is successful, by winning over uh, working class white voters by focusing on social issues. Mm-hmm, 
Mm-hmm. That Trump emphasized immigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump, you know, though he, you know, I don't know how many uh, women's abortions he paid for in his life, but he, um, <laughs> he, uh, you know, he became a huge opponent of abortions, which I, you know, helps win over evangelicals and uh, and the, and the Democrats and unions haven't been as effective in answering that demagogy. They've tried, but with unions much smaller and weaker than they used to be, you know, they they aren't as effective and and. You know, I wrote a big story about some terrific effort that, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio uh, have lost. And, you know, many people have dropped out of unions as, you know, factories closed or as um, as Wisconsin went to, you know, as Scott Walker went to war against unions. So those workers, once they, you know, were no longer working, you know, weren't being reached by the unions. So there was this very smart effort to reach out to former union members to send them the pro-worker, pro-union measures to explain to them, you know, Trump might talk a good game about being a friend of workers, but here are 28 different reasons why Trump is really screwing workers. And and that was a very effective effort. And you, and you mentioned, and I think it was uh, James Carvel recently talked about woke, the woke uh, atmosphere of the Democrats and feeling that they are the Silicon Valley, they are the educated. How do they get that working class voter back? I think now, I think Biden succeeded somewhat. You know, if you know he raised unemployment uh, benefits, he helped provide healthy stimulus benefits for people who are taking it on the chin. You know, his stimulus, you know, the one trillion stimulus bill he worked on with Republicans and the three point five billion. Those will do a whole, whole, whole lot for workers. And, you know, he uh, you know, he's not pushing these pro corporate uh, trade packs that that Obama and Clinton pushed. He you know, he's trying very hard. You know, he's pushing very hard on Buy America. He's pushing very hard on, on you know, on training. He wants to make um community college free for all Americans, you know, whose children go to community colleges, the children generally of the working class of blue collar workers. And a lot of people nowadays can't afford even to send their kids to community college. So he's, you know, community colleges are important um, ladder uh, for, you know, for mobility for working class kids. And, and, and Biden much more than Trump is trying to uh, increase mobility for the, the sons and daughters of working class Americans. So he's trying on many, many different levels. But, you know, there's so much talk about January 6th and 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 Trump, you know, and Fox News and Tucker Carlson laying into immigrants that they're that all that Biden and the Democrats are trying to do to help workers isn't getting enough attention. So labor recently lost its biggest union leader, um, AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka, who died uh, fairly early. Um, And uh, what impact did Trumka make on the labor union movement and uh, what will his loss mean? So so Richard Trumka was the president of the AFL-CIO, the American Federation of Labor Congress of Industrial Organization, which is the main, America's main labor federation, a federation of 56 unions with over 10 million workers. And he was a very forceful leader. He really knew how to rally people. He had a real fighting spirit from his time, um, his time as head of the the mine workers union. And, uh, you know, and I think people really looked to him because he brought, he knew how to bring people together. He knew how to inspire people. Uh, people say he still didn't do enough organizing, but you know, he was a, a forceful leader and greatly respected. Um, 
and his death is a major, major loss. And and his successor was his number two, um, Liz Schuler, who is the secretary treasurer. You know, she's liked, she's well respected. She's not as charismatic. She's not as forceful. You know, Trump was a working class guy from Pennsylvania. Joe Biden was a working class kid from Pennsylvania. They really got along, and 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 Trumpka was really listened to by people in the Senate. And and Liz Schuler, as much as she's respected and like, well, like she has a way to go to become as influential as Trumpka was in Washington, and as influential in in um, speaking to unions and union members around the nation. And that's a lot of ground to make up. I mean, um, you know, when you think of successful times of labor unions, you think of Samuel Gompers, who I guess is the godfather of the labor unions. You think of John Lewis, you think of George Meany, and of course, (laughs) you think of Jimmy Hoffa. Um, Is there a void of that dynamic, charismatic labor union leader out there? There are some charismatic labor leaders out there, but not as many as before. And I think partly that's because, Jerry, that, you know, when unions are really growing in the 1910s and 1930s, 1950s, you know, they were really built by these charismatic, charismatic men and women, you know, Mother Jones, uh, Walter Ruther. Uh, and, and, you know, unions, for better or for worse, have generally become larger and somewhat more bureaucratic. And, and sometimes the people who run them are not the, the great charismatic stump speakers and fighters, you know, they're more people who like were buddies of the previous president and, and they're maybe not as good speakers and maybe not as charismatic. So, but there are, you know, but there are some labor, like, like uh, Cecil Roberts, the head of United Mine Workers is one of the single best speakers I've ever heard. You know, Randy Weingarten, head of the, um, head of the American Federation of Teachers is a very effective speaker. You know, some of them really know how to rally people, but, you know, a lot of Americans, you know, despite this Gallup poll saying many Americans, you know, 68 percent of Americans approve of unions, they a lot of Americans don't aren't jazz, as jazzed about unions or know as much about unions as 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 as, you know, you know, as older Americans whose parents were often in unions or whose brothers and sisters or uncles and aunts were often in unions. So people aren't quite as familiar with unions. And so it's just harder for unions and for union leaders to be as effective in reaching out to Americans and rallying people to join unions, especially, especially, especially because corporations like Walmart and McDonald's and Amazon have become so incredibly expert and so aggressive in, in fighting back to stop unions. And it's kind of interesting because you mentioned the Trump criticism was that he didn't do as much organizing as maybe he should have. And, you know, we've talked today, we, you know, we said the climate is ripe. You know, we just got a survey, 56 percent of the people support unions. We're talking about the wealthy. And why aren't union leaders out there organizing? I mean, we have this gigantic group. of They are. They are organizing. They are trying. But. A union leader could make a very rational decision that, you know, should I spend a million dollars of my members dues money trying to unionize these 3000 workers when the playing field is tilted so much against us? When, you know, I can't I can't even send organizers onto the factory floor. I can't even send organizers into the Amazon warehouse. I can't even send organizers into the Walmart store. And they say, you know, yes, I'd love to organize these people, but until uh, legislation is enacted that makes it much easier to unionize. Maybe I'm just pissing away my money. Maybe I'm just pissing away the members' dues. So you know, uh, you know, I think that's that's a, a conundrum that Trump faced. He knew that unions should do much more organizing, but to some degree, 
it's like you know just throwing money away because so often the playing field is so tilted against unions. And if it, yeah. you know, I mean, I mentioned a statistic before: fifty percent of Americans say they would join a union tomorrow if they could. Yeah. Yet only six percent of private workers are in unions. The reason for that is the playing field is so insanely mm-hmm. tilted against unions, mm-hmm. and and companies have so much control. In, in getting their workers to vote against unions, even when when many workers start out against unions, yeah. they intimidate yeah. them, they pressure them, they propagandize them. So it's really, you know, that's why so many union leaders say we need legislation to make it easier to unionize. Mm-hmm. You know, there are too many judicial mm-hmm. uh, rulings have made it harder to unionize. And, and that's why one of the main things unions want Biden to do now is push through a law that would make it easier to unionize. But again, there's the problem of the Republican filibuster. So, um, you know, I, I look back and I step back and I say, hey, we need a Cesar Chavez. We need a Jimmy Hoffa. We need a guy going state to state. We need a, you know, we need a, a Huey Long kind of guy out there. You know, is that a even a possibility? Well, you know. Anyway, Yui Long is very charismatic, but he was a horrible demagogue. So, uh, you know, yes, he attracted a lot of people, but deep down. Uh, and you know, Jimmy Hoffa was also very charismatic, but he had his problems too. Cesar. So, I mean, so labor realizes that it needs, you know, uh, more charismatic leadership. But, you know, unions are bureaucracies. And, and, and you know, and, you know, sometimes the people who, uh, who, you know, who are the president or the, you know, the best friend of the, or the, the, the best friend of the previous president or the right hand person of the previous president. And, and, you know, they, you know, to, to go, to, you know, get along, you go along. And, right. and so I, I, you know, I agree with you, you know, it would be great if unions had, you know, more charismatic people attracted more young people who could really stir people. And, and it's a real challenge they face. I yeah. think deep down, they know they need better, stronger, more charismatic leadership, but they too often, uh, don't seem to get there. What are you doing in the next couple of years, Steve? Come on. I mean, you got to get out there. You got to get out there. Um, so one of the things that Amazon did fairly well, I guess, is they portrayed the union as a business. You know, these guys make money. They drive nice cars. Um, that has been always, it, it seems to me, a, a strong point. Um, you know, labor has always been linked to crime, um, organized crime. I mean, I'm from Philly and one of the chief labor leaders there now, John Doherty, is under indictment for bribing a city councilman and embezzling union funds. And, you know, have the unions damaged themselves by these kinds of things and how do they get around that reputation? Sure. Uh, you know, I'm often asked that question, Jerry. You know, so, you know, it's no secret, you know, back in the 1950s, you know, the Teamsters were a very corrupt organization. You know, a lot of people saw, you know, you know, you know saw the various movies about Hoffa. And, you know, the, the Longshoremen's Union on the East Coast was a very corrupt. And there were some other very corrupt unions. The hotel workers were pretty bad. The labor's union were pretty bad. But thanks to some very diligent work by, the, by federal prosecutors, those unions are much, 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 much cleaner than they used to be. And I think overall, the labor movement is less corrupt, is far less corrupt than say the Trump administration was. And and I and, and you see all these corporate executives, you know, cheating on 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 their taxes or cheating on their bonuses. And I, I don't know if organized labor is any if labor unions are any more corrupt or dishonest than many corporations. 
having said that, there's still too much corruption in unions, just like there's still too what much corruption in corporations, just like there's, there yeah. was far too much corruption in the Trump administration. So it's easy for corporations to say unions are bad. Look, there's once again, there's an example of corruption. Yeah. But, you know, I think you can point to far more examples of corruption in corporate America in recent years than there are in unions. I think the the perception, you know, here's a guy, Johnny Doc, and he, he you know, he's a six figure guy. He's a six figure president and he's representing guys who are making eighteen dollars an hour. So, you know, that's where I think they come in and whack him. It's it's more of a it's seen as more of a betrayal. You're absolutely right, Jerry. Yes. But you know, look at this woman, what's her name? Elizabeth uh Holmes, who was Oh running. yeah, Holmes. Yeah. I mean, so like that's a that's a much bigger <laughs> sure. scandal. You're talking than millions and billions, that's right. Yeah, than any unions have done. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's much more you know, she betrayed shareholders and, and you know, unions are considered, you know, we're all in together, solidarity, we are lifting each other up we're all equals and then when someone's corrupt it feels like a much worse stabbing in the back than when a corporate executive oh, does yeah. it. So, and again it's per- a lot of it's perception i mean you yeah. know it's like the one bad apple thing and it's the old and, and, and you and you might see that a you know a labor leader unfortunately will uh steal fifty thousand dollars while a corporate executive might steal two million dollars but like that <laughs> welcome the, to america the labor leader will get, will get there'll be much more news coverage of, of the labor leader yes so tell us about the new book beat down worked up the past president future of american labor tell us all about it being that worked up the past president future of american labor it really seeks to be a book that explains to people who care about you, care about labor, care about workers, care about the future of American workers, and explains to them, you know, gives a basic history of labor unions and how unions, you know, you know gained power, increased the power for workers, and really made America a much richer, fairer place and helped build, you know, a huge middle class. It looks like looks at things like the Flint sit-down strike and how that succeeded in unionizing the world's largest company, General Motors, which was then extremely anti-union, and how once GM was unionized, many, many companies in the U.S. became unionized, and and how the UAW won uh, trailblazing contracts with with General Motors, and they went very far to build the middle class so that people could own their own homes and own their own cars. So I explain how unions, you know, whose role in, in really building the middle class is greatly unappreciated. I explain the rise of unions and how they really built a fairer, healthier America. Then in the, in the middle of the book, I explain all these things that uh, forces politicians that weaken unions. And, and as unions have grown weaker, uh, many things have gotten worse in America. There's been former income inequality, former people don't have health coverage. Uh, you know, poverty rate has gone up. Uh, there's been more stress on workers. We've had 40 years of wage stagnation. I explain many factors that have uh, hurt workers and hurt unions, like increased globalization, moving jobs overseas, mm. how the Republican Party mm-hmm. and their billionaire donors have really declared war on, on unions and have used many, many strategies to weaken unions. And and I explain how this like decades-long effort to weaken unions and weaken the voice of workers has really made it much harder for many American families to live good, prosperous lives and how many workers just don't share in their corporations and their employees' prosperity the same way that they did back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, that something is broken. Corporations and Wall Street are doing very fine. Thank you. 
but many workers are no longer doing fine, thank you, because corporations just aren't sharing their prosperity, aren't sharing their profits the way they used to. They're so focused on maximizing profits, even if it means squeezing and sticking it to their workers. The third part of the book, very quickly, is like looking at strategies to strengthen worker power in the United States to help create a fairer America. And I look at some very successful unions that have lifted low-wage workers into the middle class and provided them with great you know, health benefits and other benefits, and how the teacher strikes have really you know, mobilized workers in various states to create better, fairer school systems in, in Arizona and in Oklahoma and, and in West Virginia. So, so the last third of the book is very hopeful about strategies and ways to create a fairer America. That's wonderful. And I really am really grateful that we got a chance to talk to you. I think you're probably one of the experts of labor in America and you're 30 years covering it and you know the history and it's your life. And we really appreciate you uh, spending your time and your knowledge with us. So good luck with the book. Okay. Good to be with you, Jerry. Thank you. Uh, Best of luck. You too. Keep up the good work. Yes. And we want to bring in a special guest today, our technical producer, Mike Gugan. We'll talk a little bit about the uh, the wonderful jobs we've had growing up. Welcome, Mike. Oh, I appreciate it, Jerry. And you should never put technical in front of my oh, name. Oh, I'm that's, sorry. That's you Brad. were Maybe, and, uh, uh, Brad is the no, 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 don't even say executive. It's just, you know, the, the technical thing freaks me out because I all I know how to do is tell people to refresh. Was I supposed to be recording this? Very good. So, you know, Labor Day, I, I got to thinking about some of the uh, some of some of the jobs I've had growing up, and uh, I remember, uh, I guess my first one was at the Riverfront Restaurant in Philadelphia. It was on the waterfront, and uh, restaurants were always a great place because it was really kind of a family atmosphere. And we were teenagers, and the you know the waiters and waitresses kind of took us under their wing. But I remember the the manager was a guy named Peter Braun, and he was German. And he looked like a Nazi, and and that's, you know, not to slur every German as a Nazi, but he was dressed, I mean, he dressed, you know, impeccably, and he walked around the floor going, super, 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 and he snapped his fingers, and they just had everybody moving, and I still use that word super, and that's 40 years ago. Uh, so how about you? What was your first job? It's, it's, ama- it's amazing that with a name like that, that's like one of those Hollywood yes, names it, where somebody's abbreviated a last name. He was name, out of central yeah. casting. He could have been Casablanca, no doubt, no doubt. How about you? Well, it's so cool hearing Stephen talk about all these things because my first job was mowing lawns. And my father, who was a school teacher and coach for 40 years, taught at a time where summer vacation was was something real to him because of the union that he belonged to as a teacher. And so mowing lawns was the only thing he let me do because selfishly he wanted to go camping yeah. and hiking yeah. and play, you know, have me in sports camps and, and uh, you know, things like that. So, uh, you know, I, I tried to mow a lot of uh, lawns as though they were the, uh, you know, the lawn of, uh, you know, a baseball stadium, but I'm hey, not sure. Hey, wait a some- minute. I'm still mowing lawns. I've still got that job. Hold on a minute. Yeah. Um, I've got a stoop that, you know, every <laughs> once in a while you, you, you hose off. But. So um, how about um, how about your, your parents? I mean, uh, was there much you did kind of labor employer kind of thing in your life? You know, there was one distinct time where uh, the the school district that my father, you know, taught in went on strike. And I just, you know, I, I was too young to really appreciate the why of it, other than I could I could see the stress on my father and the, you know, the, 
you know, the idea that they actually went on strike and, you know, the, you know, not crossing the line and, and how important it was to them at that time. And, you know, Stephen referenced Scott Walker. And I, if I remember correctly, when Scott Walker became governor in, in Wisconsin, he took on the teachers union. And then it was a few years later that, you know, most of those that had left the union thinking that, you know, that not having to pay those union dues, they would have more in their pocket and, you know, all of their salaries had gone down substantially. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. My father, I, I mentioned to Steve, my father was with the transportation workers union. He was a bus mechanic for the city of Philadelphia and there were a couple of strikes and then those strikes were long and they were very, uh, very um, confrontational because I mean, the city mass transit shuts down and it's shut down for as long as these guys are sitting down. And I can remember my brother, tell me you know going to the grocery store and you know we had six kids and you know you know putting a box of groceries together and he goes up to pay for it and the store owner says you know don't worry about a kid your, your dad's on your dad's on strike and that was like that was scorsese stuff i mean that was just that was america you know that was like we're, we're you're sticking out you know, for your family, we're sticking out for you. And, uh, you know, as, as I went on, I was in the newspaper guild a couple of times at different papers and I can remember, so it must've been like 80, maybe 88, 89 and the Detroit free press and the Detroit news, I guess, went on strike and they started calling around the country to bring in you know, what the union people call scabs. And I remember getting a call from them and saying, Hey, you want to come? And I'm like, what are you kidding me? Man? There is no way I'm coming to Detroit and crossing the picket line. I mean, you know, that's just a ticket to the pearly gates, you know? Well, and, and, and not knowing exactly what year that was, but as a sports fan, you know, and growing up with, you know, football when, uh, you know, things went on strike and, uh, you know, them trying to have games with scabs and, and things of that nature. But I think it is so interesting um, to have that Gallup poll come out that he referenced that there's, you know, certainly an improved impression of unions. The thing I really struggle with is everything I hear from the unions is fight, fight, fight. Yeah. And I think people are tired of fighting. That's, that's and and if anything, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not endorsing point. Trump, yes, but God forbid, point, yeah. you know, you know, the one thing the corporate world does or, you know, all these people that tune into things like Shark Tank right. is, is talk about value propositions. Right. And I think there's a real case for those unions to show people like, hey, this is what we are for. And this when we do this, these are the results. Well, it's kind of interesting. And if they could just simplify it in that context, yeah. then it's like, oh, wow, I will re-up my dues and recruit two or three other people to join in yes. versus – Hey, we're going to go fight. And then now you're trying to make the case for why you're fighting yeah. and everybody's tired. Well, and it's kind of interesting. And I think um, Steve mentioned it very briefly, but, you know, I want to say, I think 40, 50 years ago, there were 375 strikes and, you know, now it's down to like maybe double digits, but there was an increase in unionism in uh, 2017, 2018, you may remember this, uh, teachers were going on strike. And that was a whole different uh, perception because, you know, these to Chicago, was, I, I think he mentioned Arizona. I forget what year, what, what ones, but that's a whole different story. And you're kind of nailing it because, you know, the teachers are the people that teach your kids. And so you're going to listen to them. You're going to, you're going to understand what they're going through. And the teachers really pushed back and that's a public that's a public sector, you know, but, um, you know, that was, um, 
that was kind of what you were saying is that, hey, what's the value here? Do you want your kids getting a better education because we're hiring more qualified people because we're paying them more money? And um, I think you're right. It's got to get back to um, what, you know, you know, show me the money in a sense, you know, and see, show me what you can do for me. And, and I'll leave you with this thought. I mean, look at, you know, we're going to celebrate this Labor Day with a barbecue and the majority of working people won't actually be at a barbecue because they'll actually be working in those service jobs. Yes, yes that's right. That's right. You know, as opposed to a Stephen reference, you know, those, those countries in the European Union that through the labor earn that, yeah. you know, four weeks of paid vacation and what that does to a culture, a community, a family. Yeah. Those dang French, man, they get everything. My first time on the podcast, I thought we'd end on something funny. Yeah, okay. So these two guys walk into a bar, right? And no. Uh, I thank you for being on. I thank you for helping out today and uh, helping out with our technical producer, Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods. And uh, it's great working with you. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to many, many more, many more days. So it's my honor. All righty. So we will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics podcast until then always remember to read beyond the headlines have a great weekend labor day with the front row award-winning reporter gerard shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported not invented or twisted imagine you have press credentials in the front row with shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.